Well, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This week, we have an interesting anniversary that we want to talk about. A couple of weeks ago was the one-year anniversary of the Nashville Statement on Sexuality. And I don't know how many of you all have followed the Nashville Statement or have even heard of it before, but the reason I want to talk about it is because it is a landmark statement for those who would consider themselves evangelical, conservative, Bible-believing Christians, but it didn't have the response that you would think for a statement like that. Right. It wasn't as uh, broadly accepted, although it was it was well accepted, but it wasn't as broadly accepted. And it came under fire for a couple of interesting reasons. But maybe the way to kick this off for our listeners, Cole, is uh, what what is the Nashville Statement? What was it about? And basically, what did it say? So to, to set up the Nashville Statement, we have to go back about 30 years to the 1980s when you had the founding of an organization called the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, so the CBNW. And this was founded by Wayne Grudem and John Piper and several of the the people in that camp. And what they were essentially trying to do was deal with the major issue of that day when it came to sexuality, which was egalitarianism, which says that males, females, everybody has access to everything, whether that's in the home, you know, marriage is an equal partnership, or in the church. Uh, Women have every right to be elders. They can do anything that, that, that men can do in the church. Versus complementarianism, and this is actually when the term complementarianism was coined, was at the founding of this organization by Piper and Grudem, saying the Bible actually teaches that men and women have complementary roles in the church and in the home, and this organization, the CBMW, exists to define and clarify what complementarity looks like. Now, the church is obviously split over that issue, and there are a lot of Bible-believing churches that are egalitarian. There are a lot of churches that are complementarian. Um, but now, 30 years later, it's not as much a, a, a interfraternal battle between churches over that issue. Now, the frontline issue among churches is how do we define sexuality? So right. in the wake of the LGBTQ movement, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be within the bounds of biblical sexuality? So enter the Nashville Statement. Last year, about 100 signatories came together and signed this statement, which is essentially a creed about sexuality for the church. Now, we're not really used to creeds. We think of creeds as being old, you know, antiquated documents Dusty. of the church. What What is the church doing now trying to come up with a creedal document? Right. I think I actually, having read it, and I know you'll read a little piece, the affirm, we affirm this, we deny this, has a historical background to it, and it actually has a clarity to it. Now, it can be heard by modern ears as a document that's trying to say, you must believe this. That's not the purpose of a creed in general, and it's not the purpose of this. It's the purpose of basically contrasting. The Bible affirms this. The Bible denies this. I think, uh, I think it might find more purchase than we think, particularly among younger people who uh, hearken back in history and like some of those forms. So I would say to anyone reading it, don't let the form of it stand in the way of what it's trying to communicate. If you look at the history of, of creeds, you know, we tend to think of creeds as um, something that you might say on Sunday. Like if you're in a church where they say the Nicene Creed, it becomes kind of a, 
a rote ritual that you go through that doesn't really mean anything. But the purpose of creeds is is instructive for the church today. In the first centuries of the church, they had what, what Protestants would consider five major church councils. And at each one of those councils, beginning with the Council of Nicaea in the fourth century, the church was trying to clarify and work out and draw some lines around what it means to be a Christian. So if we look at the Council of, of Nicaea, for example, they're trying to identify what we need to believe as Christians about the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the judgment, the, the coming return of Christ in broad enough terms that everybody who is a Christian will get surround this statement and endorse it. Can I make one point here and say hold this thought for later? The Nicaea, uh, Council of Nicaea and the following councils were not trying to come up with creeds as evangelistic tools or to go publish in the New Rome Times in the 4th century AD. It was, as you just said, a document to clarify and unify what the Christian flock believed. That's right. And, yeah. and Hold that thought, because I think that's going to be important when we fast forward to the 21st century. The implications then would be that you have all these bishops who have gathered together, and the history of the creeds is really fascinating. And, and if you if you have a cynical mind, you can look at the creeds as very political documents. And there are some interesting stories at, at several of these councils. They're trying to vote before the opposition gets there, because it you know it takes you know six months to get the word out and get everybody there and. You know, it's not like you could send out a mass email and get this stuff worked out. So the history of the creeds is fascinating. But the point is you would take these creeds from the council and you would take them back to your churches and the people would actually learn the creeds so that they could learn what they believed as Christians. So in a, in a day and age where most of the people couldn't read and you didn't have printed right. Bibles, this was a necessary tool to begin to disperse what it means to be a Christian doctrinally among your people. So this is very much a, a, a document and a practice that would have circulated within the church itself. This is something that you use as a discipleship exactly. and an education method. Now what we see in the later councils is they get more and more specific. We see at the Council of Chalcedon, they're trying to define the nature of Christ. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I think you know, most people probably don't understand even today that the, the terms that have that were reached in the Council of Chalcedon are probably violated every Sunday uh, in somebody's pulpit somewhere because they're not circulated anymore. Right. So when you get to the minutia of what it means for Christ to have a, a, a fully human nature, a divine nature. They're not intermingled, but they're both present. And, you know, does Christ have one will or two wills? Does he have, you know, he has flesh, but does, does that make him uh, a human just like we are or, or not? Right. Is there any difference? I mean, that's really complicated stuff. And, and we don't really look to those creeds anymore, although I would argue we probably should. But if you fast forward, you know, 1,500 years, what is the church now doing coming up with a creed? Well, I think that background is really instructive. The Nashville Statement, in my opinion, and, and what I've seen in the coverage of it, is meant to function like a creed. So it's, it's meant to be something where if you're in this group of evangelicals and, and, and Bible-believing Christians, this is what the Bible says about sexuality. It's meant to be a tool that can be used in churches to affirm 
what the Bible teaches about sexuality. In fact, one of the things you've seen, Southern Seminary brought the Nashville Statement into one of its core guiding documents. So now mm-hmm. if you if you enroll at Southern, you sign you know, that you abide by their belief statement, one of the parts of that is that you abide by the Nashville Statement on Sexuality. Right. So that, to me, is kind of the role that it should play. That's the role that creedal documents do play in the church, but that's not how it was received. Talk a little bit about its reception in the broader church community. It seems to me that you had two camps, and... I, I think personal opinion, I think it depends on, it probably broke down into whom you thought that document was for or how you saw that document having an impact. But basically it came like this, is that people saw it as a, an important statement, clarifying, unifying statement of what the Bible teaches and what Christians believe about human sexuality. And I believe that everybody who signed that has a flock if you will, and was pastoring their flock and felt it very important that their flock understood that because in today's day, we're all hearing a lot of voices in our ears saying a lot of different things. And a pastor, one of the pastor's role is to shepherd his flock and to take them into the truth. And so I believe that the people that signed it felt that way about it. I think there were others, I'll tell you one that I thought was uh, was eloquent was Scott McKnight, for example, who agreed with the truth of the Nashville statement, but felt that it was pastorally deficient. Meaning, if you think about people who are not believers and they hear that, is that going to be off-putting? In other words, I agree with the truth, but is this the best way to do it? And I have some respect for both of those points of view. Uh, I think that the signers, however, weren't intending that like you just talked about the creed, to necessarily be a, quote, evangelical tool. It was a tool to shepherd the flock. That's where I think the major split came in the Nashville Statement is if the Nashville Statement is primarily geared towards teaching what these churches believe about sexuality, then it isn't necessarily an imposition on everyone saying, hey, this is what you need to believe about sexuality. Now, this is a little bit of a fine line because mm-hmm. we're not relativists. So we don't believe, well, you know what, this this is kind of what we believe about sexuality, but other churches are free to believe whatever they want. No, this is a definitive statement. This is what the Bible teaches about sexuality. So I don't want to confuse the intention of the people that wrote this statement with the way that it actually played out. Right. Um, but I do want to say, yeah, it, you know, Denny Burke and, and Piper and the guys that were the, the initial signers of this, do they believe that this is what every Christian should believe about sexuality? Yes. It was the intention of this to be something that you can take in hand and talk to a non-believer about their faith. No. This is something that is meant for churches to clarify, to be a document that they use. This is meant to um, guide kind of intramural dialogue between churches but in, in no way is this something where we're offering this as our best pastoral counsel to somebody who's struggling with sexuality. Exactly. Here's an analogy I like to use. When we were raising our children, our children would hear a lot of things from their friends at school, etc. And they'd come home and we would talk about it or they would see a television program at a neighbor's house. And we would say at that point, we'd say, listen, it's important that we talk about this because I want you to know what we believe. And some things that you're hearing, we do not believe to be true. This is not what 
God tells us in the Bible. We had those conversations with our children. They needed to hear it because they had a lot of voices in their ears. And it was our duty as parents, and we were very passionate that we want to make sure that you don't have confusion about what is true and what is good and what is right. We didn't do that with our neighbor kids. We didn't walk out to the neighbors and say, by the way, I'm going to tell you what you need to believe here. I believed it was true, whether our neighbor children believed it or not, but that's not what I would do. It's the same thing in a church, is we have an obligation to our children, if you will, God's children, those believers in Christ, to make sure that out of all those voices, they know what is true. We don't necessarily take those same things and say, oh, by the way, you don't believe in Jesus Christ, and I'm going to throw a barrier up here for you. You better get this sexuality thing right before you can even come into our church. Well, of course not. None of us would do that. Here's the difference. When it, today, it's like when we were talking to our children in our living room about this, that it was being broadcast to the entire world. Mm-hmm. And now... There's not that bare, that dividing point between I'm talking to my family. This message is for my family. I would not speak the exact same way. Now, the truth is the same, but I wouldn't mm-hmm. speak the same thing to someone else. But the Nashville statement is like, here's the way I'm going to use this analogy. This is like speaking to your children, your flock, but it's being broadcast to the whole world and being interpreted as though, oh my goodness, how could you speak so harshly to people that don't believe the way you do? Right. It was it was looked at as a as a pugnacious, you know, belligerent document, but I, I don't think that was the intention. And the thing that's a little bit frustrating about it is there there isn't a dividing line now between what you can teach to your people, what you teach to your flock, versus what you're pro- proclaiming to the entire world. And we, you know, part of that is the social dynamic that we live in where there's at least the facade of the belief that, you know, you can believe whatever you want in your church, sitting in your pews, preaching in your pulpit. You hear that a lot. Right. So in arguments about religious freedom and dialogue and hate speech, it's like, no, you can say whatever you want in your church, but you can't say that in the public square. Well, unfortunately, there isn't a distinction between what's said in your church and what's said in the public square because exactly. of media, because of social media. So while I want to maintain the pastoral distinction, and if you've been in ministry, you understand this, the way that you're going to talk to a Christian about what they believe and the way that you're going to talk to somebody when you're evangelizing, the way that you're going to talk to somebody that's really struggling with this issue is different, but that doesn't mean the truth is different. Exactly. That's a pastoral tension that you can hold in place and say, no, what's true is true is true. But the way that you're going to go about a conversation with different people who we believe are different creations even. I mean, if if you have a person who has the Holy Spirit, they have the mind of Christ, and you're talking about what the Bible says, the way that you're going to handle that discussion and the way that you're going to handle a discussion with somebody who doesn't believe what the Bible says and maybe even is hostile to what the Bible says is going to be different. And that doesn't change the truth. But I want to dive in a little bit to what the Nashville Statement actually says and in what it's trying to accomplish now that we've We've established a little bit the reception of it. So like you mentioned, it's it's organized around an opening statement, and then it has 14 articles uh, that are affirmations and denials, which is kind of a, an old creedal form, which I think is really clarifying. Um, and I just want to read three of the statements that I think are probably the most impactful. So the first statement is just, uh, the first article is just a statement of biblical sexuality. So it says, Article 1, We affirm that God has designed marriage to be a covenant, sexual, procreative, lifelong union of one man and one woman as husband and wife and is meant to signify the covenant love between Christ and his bride, the church. 
we deny that God has designed marriage to be a homosexual, polygamous, or polyamorous relationship. We also deny that marriage is a mere human construct rather than a covenant made before God. So that's pretty clear. I mean, it's right. it's it's very forthcoming. It's They're not beating around the bush. This is a creedal document here. Mm-hmm. But they're basically laying out, this is the biblical view of marriage. Exactly. That, and I think when you hear something like, we deny this, it sounds as though we are criticizing anyone who would disagree with that. The purpose of the document is not to disagree. The purpose of the document is to clarify this for Christians, believers. This form actually is very, very clear. And as you said, it's not very wordy. It Every word means something. It's simply trying to, as concisely as possible, say, Here's what we understand the Bible to clearly teach. The thing that was kind of interesting is when you, especially on Twitter, when you saw this statement published and then people reacting to it, is you see people that are like, you know, Episcopalians who are criticizing this statement because it's a politically, you know, within the church opportunistic moment. It's almost as if they're using it as an evangelistic tool because they're like, you can't believe that Christians would actually say this, so you should come on to our brand of Christianity. Right. But what I, what I like about the clarifying statement at the beginning is, look, this isn't for Episcopalians. Right. The, you know, the Episcopalian church for 30 years hasn't believed what this creed says. Right. So this isn't a statement for them. Now, does it condemn what they believe? Implicitly, yes, it does. If, if you're going to claim to be a Christian, which Episcopalians do, then this is what you should believe. So there, there is an implicit denial of what they're believing. But the intention isn't to go out and, 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 and put the Episcopalian church on notice or, you know, whoever else. I mean, almost all the mainline denominations are going to disagree with this. Yes. And the thing, that, the thing that is a little bit frustrating is when you look at the people in the mainline denominations who are criticizing this statement saying, how could you say that? You know, you're tone deaf. That was the major thing that you saw is, you know, you're not reaching, you know, people with this. I mean, my, my one comment to them would be, <laughs> or really two, two comments to them would be, number one, okay, you come up with a statement. Right. I would love to see the liberal mainline denominations come up with a statement on sexuality. They're proving right now that they can't. Right. They, they really can't. They're, they're ordaining gays. They're, you know, ordaining uh, transgender people in their churches. And so their creed is essentially whatever the culture believes, we believe. But that, that, that may work in that kind of mindset as a, as a document. But, but what this document is trying to do is say this is a uniquely Christian position. So that would be my first thing. The second thing would be, uh, you know, you can, you can criticize this all you want, but, but make an actual argument. Right. Make, there's most of the reception on this was ad hominem, and it's over things that have already been established. It's like we're just raking out the same things over and over again. Mm-hmm. How backwards could you possibly be? And you know this statement is so close-minded. It's like yeah, but it, but it was written to all the close-minded people. Right. It's it's it's, it's, <laughs> it's written to the people that are already on that side of things. And right. So the, what I like about this opening statement, despite the reception, is it's clear, it's biblical. It's talking to people that have already kind of traversed this chasm in the church. It's not meant to reach out and say, hey, let's be, uh, let's get some inter- interdenominational dialogue going on. It's saying, look, if you believe in biblical sexuality, here's a great way to put it. Here are the essentials. Let me contextualize this a little bit. Suppose for a moment that uh, a Muslim organization 
put out a statement in a creedal form that says, we affirm that there is no God but God, and Muhammad is his prophet. We deny that Jesus is the Son of God, was crucified on a cross, died for our sins, and was raised to eternal life. Now, let me just ask you, are you offended by that? No, you know, because not, you realize that that's written to Muslims to clarify, and by the way, that is what Orthodox Islam believes to be true. I respect that that's what you believe to be true. I'm not offended by that document. It simply says they disagree with me. I know that I disagree right. I'm not with Muslim. that. So I, I'm not offended, right. but I think they're wrong. Uh, absolutely, and, the, the and only that's fair enough. The only difference here is, and, and you know, this case has been made for going on 100 years. Uh, J. Gresham Machen made this case in the 1920s. The liberal church and the conservative church are still under the same banner of mm-hmm. Christian, but they are essentially two different religions. Mm-hmm. And so while I wouldn't be offended by Muslims saying what Muslims believe, even though I think they're wrong, mm-hmm. I also am not really offended by liberal churches saying what they believe, except for the fact that they're claiming to be Christians in the same way that we are. And I think that's where some of the that's some of the, the visceral reactions take place is, well... You know, I don't expect you to believe what I believe, but if you're going to say that we believe the same things, mm-hmm. then we need to make it clear that we don't. Well, there is some clarity we had using my example of Islam is at least we understand where we stand. And I think at that point you can have meaningful dialogue. Mm-hmm. I think it's hard when you begin to erase the boundaries and you have very fuzzy language and you have uh, certain denominations that don't have any truth claims to make because they have a more postmodern, post-structuralist view of the truth. It's very hard to have dialogue. And so you end up splitting into camps, Mm -hmm. conservative church, liberal church, Republican, Democrat. We get very polarized. And I don't think that's helpful for us at all. But I would say that something like the Nashville Statement, whether you agree with this or you don't agree with this, uh, is clarifying. And you can actually have dialogue about this. Again, I'll go back to Scott McKnight. Scott McKnight's comments, uh, and I'm not picking on him. I just That was one of the things I happened to read at the time. He was opposed, but he wasn't opposed to the truth of it. He was opposed to the way that it happened. And we could have dialogue mm-hmm. about that. It's very difficult to have a conversation without that clarity. You just get a lot of people yelling at each other. And I think that's what you were talking about. Yeah, the statement goes on to define a lot of what biblical sexuality and people that you know agree with that have studied that would say there's two articles in here that have been decisive within the evangelical biblical world that and that would be article 7 and article 8 so article 7 says we affirm that self-conception as male or female should be defined by God's holy purposes in creation and redemption as revealed in scripture we deny that adopting a homosexual or transgender self-conception is consistent with God's holy purposes in creation and redemption. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing about this statement, this article, is that this is where the lines were drawn in the Revoice Conference, is how much identity can you take on when it comes to your sexual uh, lifestyle and attraction and you know all the nuance that goes into that. Well, this, you, by nature of it being a creed, doesn't have a lot of nuance. Right. And so you know, this article is basically saying, no, no self-conception that has to do with sexuality outside of the biblical conception of marriage is permissible 
among Christians. And that's something I feel like really got some pushback when, mm-hmm. this, when this was published. I agree. I think, well, there are a lot of things in my head right now, particularly some things that have happened this year that are almost prophetic in in, in this. Is For example, the idea of homosexual identities, living a homosexual lifestyle, is almost past us in the sense that discussing... For example, I was uh, recently noticed uh, that California has a law that basically makes it against the law, fine, potentially jail terms for certain people, healthcare providers, I believe, in this case, to intentionally and consistently use a pronoun that a transgender person objects to. Mm-hmm. New York City, I know, also has an ordinance similar to this that makes it against the law punishable by a fine for, with your employees or whatever, using a pronoun that they consistently disagree with. And so here we're talking about this idea of identity, and what you see is the erasing of identity. Mm -hmm. And it's gotten, in this past year, since the Nashville statement came out, it's gotten worse. We're not only erasing or wanting to validate an identity of being same-sex identity, we want to completely eliminate the idea of gender. Mm -hmm. It seems to me, here's the only point I would make about this, it seems quite reasonable if you were shepherding a flock in the midst of hearing this kind of erasing of the boundaries and blurring of the lines, that it might be useful in some way. Perhaps we don't you may not like this way of doing it, but it seems pastorally something that we must do with mm-hmm. our flocks in some way to say, let me contrast this with God's truth. Because if I don't ever hear God's truth, it's like raising your child and they never hear about the Bible and somehow expecting them to be a Christian when they're older mm-hmm. is that we have to talk about these lines. And I believe this is situation's gotten worse, but I, I've gotten off track a little. Back to your idea of, uh, are we talking here about identity? Is that another way that we might say it is having a uh, homosexual identity, having a transgender identity, having some other kind of identity? Is that what this is basically talking about? I do think that this this article is, is a bit, if we're, if we're using a loose version of this term, but it, it is a bit prophetic of the discussions that we're now having a year later not that they weren't going on at this point. That's why I think this was a helpful document. But what we're seeing now is an identity question. And that, back to the Revoice Conference, we, we, we talked about this in our, in our first podcast. We don't need to belabor this point. But yeah, taking on an identity of any kind, especially when it comes to sexual ethics, is not a biblical idea. It's a cultural idea. And the reason I think that it's important and reasonable and pastoral to discuss a statement like this is is because the church didn't bring this up. Mm-hmm. The culture brought this up. So, you know, you, you you get some flack, honestly, in ministry. Like, why do you guys talk about sexuality all the time? Why do you, you, know, why do you have to condemn, you know, gay people all the time? And and certainly that's not, that that's not our pastoral practice. The, right. the, the practice that we're after is let's talk about what the Bible says on the Bible's terms. And our people all day, every day are being inculcated. Their worldviews are being transformed by the culture on the culture's terms. And so it's a responsive effort to talk about what the culture's terms are and recapture those terms from a biblical worldview. So I just, as an example, one of the, one of the, uh, 
comments that we got early on, we published an article on the show Queer Eye. So what Queer Eye is trying to do as a show is through the method of entertainment, which I think is probably the best worldview transformation mechanism. Agreed. What you're entertained by is what you're going to believe in six months or a year or two Mm -hmm. years. And the entertainment industry knows that. And so what they're doing with the show Queer Eye is they're trying to cast a narrative about identity, about sexuality, about homecoming, and they're going to entertain you as they change your mind about those issues. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things we pointed out in our article. Well, the pushback we got was, you know, there's all these other things that the church could talk about. Why are you talking about this? Don't you think these people have been beaten up enough? And the response, I think, and the way to read this Nashville statement is, that's true. But we didn't start the show Queer Eye. You know, we didn't publish those episodes. We didn't decide to make it the most popular show in in America. And those are the terms that have been set. I think it's naive to not at least realize that that is an evangelistic effort. Right. I'm not arguing just saying how should we confront that. But I think anybody who fails to think that that show is not evangelistic is really missing the point. Right. And so if that's what you're up against, if Mm -hmm. that's what people are... Are, are experiencing and ingesting all week, then I would say you do have a pastoral obligation to teach biblically within, right. within the Bible's own terms to what the culture is saying. And so a statement like this, I think, is actually apt. I think it's wise more than I think it's reckless or aggressive or any things that it's been labeled because people need to know what the Bible says, what, what the church teaches about the issues that they're confronting all day, every day. I agree. I think that's particularly important because if I remember right, in just a second, you can read the uh, second part of that article. But here's here's the narrative from the culture. It's a basically a binary narrative is you can find your identity in your sexuality, whether that's transgendered, it's bisexual, it's asexual, it's uh, homosexual. I mean, whatever you can find an identity and in fact, you should embrace your identity based on that. What a narrow, narrow view of human identity and human flourishing. So mm-hmm. you either do that or you can be part of a church that hates people like that. Mm-hmm. That is not the biblical narrative. No. And the, you're going to see in this that it does clarify it and say what, what this statement basically just said that you read is that the Bible does not teach us to define our identity by our sexuality. And if I remember the second part of this, it says, however, people are going to have feelings, for example, of same-sex attraction. I'm going to throw, they didn't say this, but this is what it's talking about, having that. And the Bible encompasses that. I believe the second part of this is going to talk about the idea that you can still live a joyful Christian life, even though there are a diversity to some extent, of sexual feelings, but that we cannot be self-identified. In other words, that cannot be our core identity. Am I mistaken, or is that... Right. Yeah, so Article 8 says, We affirm that people who experience sexual attraction for the same sex may live a rich and fruitful life pleasing to God through faith in Jesus Christ as they, like all Christians, walk in purity of life. We deny that sexual attraction for the same sex is part of the natural goodness of God's original creation or that it puts a person outside the hope of the gospel. And that's the narrative that is non 
quote, binary. It's not the world's narrative of embrace your identity, identify yourself by your sexuality, or join those bigots in the church who hate all of you. That is not the biblical narrative, and I don't think we've done a good job of getting it out. Now, I realize the Nashville statement's pretty cut and dry, but that last phrase, nor do we think people who experience same-sex attraction are beyond. Mm -hmm. In other words, that is a blatant statement of what is absolutely true in the Bible, and that is you do not have to hate people that are different. Yeah, that, you know, the Bible, I think, is clear, and I, I love the part of this statement that's clarifying. Nobody is beyond the hope of the gospel. Exactly. Nobody, no matter what kind of uh, struggle, whether it be sexual nature or not, nobody is beyond the redemption that Christ offers on the cross. And that's true across the board. It gets magnified and taken out of context because this is the specific issue with which the church is being attacked. But we could substitute in there money. In other words, there are various different experiences that people have toward money, toward greed, toward the goodness of material things, and yet the Bible calls all of us, regardless, to be redeemed and to find our identity not in mammon, as the Bible says, but in Christ, because you cannot serve both. We could substitute any of our proclivities, any of our sinful uh, nature and sinful tendencies in there and say that. The problem is, if you just take one and pull it out of context, it tends to make it look like the church, all you want to talk about is sexuality. No, actually, what we want to talk about is the sin problem that we all have, and thank God that he sent his son to redeem us. Yeah, I want to I want to close with a passage from Scripture that I, I I don't know that I've ever heard anybody talk about it when it comes to sexuality, but I think is one that is really instructive when it comes to the way that we teach, the way that we preach, and um, specifically in this conversation, how we appropriate something like the Nashville statement. Um, you know, one of the big problems in our dialogue about sexuality is the Old Testament versus the New Testament. So we. We rush to places like Leviticus that prohibit you know, homosexuality or whatever that is, and people like to point to that and say, well, you know, that's Old Testament, this is right. New Testament. And that's, that's really a conversation for a different time. I think that arises out of a misunderstanding of the way the Old Testament is, is used among Christians. But I want to point to a passage in Isaiah chapter 56 that gives us a picture of how the law, so Leviticus, mm -hmm. was actually used and was actually followed in ancient Israel. So if the problem is, okay, we've got a statement like the Nashville statement. You may disagree with what it says. A lot of people who even agree with what it says disagree about the pastoral implications. Right. Well, I want to show what, what we see in Scripture about the pastoral implications of something like the book of Leviticus. Hmm. So if Leviticus is a statement of what Israel believes, how did Israel going about, go about actually you know, putting those rules into practice mm -hmm. in uh, the Old Testament time? So in Isaiah 56, he writes in verse 3, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. So to give a little bit of background on this, if you, if you want to convert in the Old Testament, essentially you have to become a Jew. So, right. you, so you essentially come in, you start to participate in the ceremonial law and the moral law. And one of the things, especially in the time of Isaiah, is you're having people from very drastically different religious and cultural backgrounds who are coming in. And some of them have been made eunuchs by other cultural practices. Correct. So we actually see an example of this in Acts chapter 8, 
Right. So Philip evangelizes to the Ethiopian eunuch. Well, this is not a, an entirely uncommon practice in not the ancient all. world. Right. Is that somebody would have been made a eunuch, and then what happens to them when they become a Jew? A Jew, right. Um, and so... It's an understandable statement to say I should be cut off from my people because these people would have been ritually unclean. Well, your first reaction would be, and this is very interesting where you're going with this because the parallels are very clear, is for a Jew to say, you can never be a Jew Mm -hmm. because you are a eunuch, you are impure, you are are unclean. You can never be a Jew. Mm -hmm. And and the the more emotional concern here, you know, you look at the end of verse 3, let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. Right. You know, what they're saying is, you know, the eunuch has no hope of procreation. Correct. Which, in, in, a, in a Jewish understanding of the world, that that is, I mean, there are other purposes, but that's the primary purpose of marriage. It's the first of the 613 commandments in the law of Moses. Is right. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And so it carried with it a huge significance. Yeah, if you see, you know, you look at the garden, that's, 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 what, that's the cultural mandate. That's what God tells Adam and Eve is... Be fruitful, multiply. And so if you're a eunuch, you come in and you say, like, I can't even abide by the first commandment. Exactly. I can't even right. you know, participate in, in God's plan for the world. But this is so fascinating what God says to them after this. So let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. But verse 4, for thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall never be cut off. Wow. And I'm just struck by, you know, in the words of God, you know, this is, this is thus saith the Lord. This isn't Isaiah speaking. This is the Lord speaking. And the pastoral, emotional, comforting tone of this passage. So, you have a person who is a sexual minority, who's an outcast, who is in violation of the law. But when they find themselves in a situation where they're coming to God, what does God say to them? I'm going to redeem what is true about you sexually. Notice what he says. He doesn't say that this is because you're a eunuch. He doesn't right. even say that this is, you know, in spite of the fact that you're a eunuch. Right. He says, if you will come and you will keep my Sabbath, so if you will come and worship right. with a whole heart, and you will choose the things that please me. So we could imply in that, you know, sexual fidelity to God's yeah. plan. Obedience if to... If you will repent. Yes. If you will come as you are and begin to do the things that are pleasing to God, I will give you something better. Yes. Than what you could ever have had from a worldly standpoint. I will give you something better than children. I will give you something better than honor. I will give you something better than a name. I will give you my own name. I will give you an everlasting name that shall never be cut off. What God's saying to them is, you may not be able to have a family of your own, but you can always be a member of my family. Amen. Well, Cole, what's the best thing you've read, article, book, etc., in the last week or two? I'll tell you what, the best thing I've read this week is not a book or article or anything. Ed Whalen's Twitter feed this week during the, <laughs> the Kavanaugh hearings <laughs> was amazing. Uh, the, the things I like about him, he 
is an expert in the Supreme Court. I mean, he really knows what's going on. Right. And second, he's not afraid to call it like it is. I mean, there is a lot of grandstanding. There's a lot of uh, what we could generously call fake news coming out of these hearings and things. Um, And he was very careful to provide the information that was actually true. Right. between all of the stuff that was being said in the hearings, but then even more than that, what was being said by Twitter users in angry mobs on every side. Uh-huh. I really, really enjoyed following along, listening to some of the hearings, but but reading his analysis of what was going on throughout the week. That was probably my best read. Secondly, I've been down a little bit of a rabbit hole lately um, with Boris Johnson. Oh, yeah. So I love Boris. He is America's, or uh, he's actually born in America, but he's England's kind of funniest buffoon. He's a brilliant guy, but he's just got that personality. Did you like his book on Churchill, by the way? His book on Churchill was awesome. Yeah. I thought it was really, really good. It's very Boris Johnson. But I got an offer to do a free month of The Telegraph. So I did a free trial of The Telegraph, and Boris Johnson has had a column in The Telegraph for years. And he stopped it recently when he signed on to Theresa May's cabinet and was the foreign secretary. Right. But I but he started it started he started it back up <laughs> shortly before he resigned. So what I did in the last month was I went back and I read about you know fifty or sixty columns that Boris Johnson had done because I wanted to know what made him so popular. Things that you know he's uniquely good at or things that he brings to the table right. that set him apart because I don't know if you know this even in the midst of his time in London and the time after that being the mayor, right. he was on staff at the Telegraph. He was being paid as a columnist. A, I don't think I knew that. A ton of money. I don't know exactly how much it was, but like 200,000 pounds a year or something like that. I mean, just a ton of money to write a weekly column. So I said, if somebody's going to pay somebody that much money to write you know, 750 to 1,000 words every week, I want to figure out what they're really good at. What they're good at. And it was really fascinating when I started to read all of these. They're very similar in the way that they work. I mean, they're very, there's a lot of um, commonality in all of his posts. And probably my two or three biggest takeaways were he is a master of titles. So his titles make you want to read the thing because they are almost always the thesis put in the most incendiary way you can in about 10 words. You know, so one one of my favorite ones that he wrote a long time back before the Brexit referendum was, uh, the rest of the world believes in a strong England and we should too. Huh. You know, so he had the one with the burqa recently that caught right. all that fire. Well, the, the, right. the title was incendiary in and of itself. In fact, it was more incendiary than the actual piece. But he tells you exactly what you're going to hear in the, in the column in the title. And a lot of titles, I think, that I read are nebulous. Right. You know, they're a little bit catchy, but they're, we, we love like two, three-word titles or something. His are like a sentence long, and they're very convincing. The second thing that I like about him is he has this, he has this travel guide feel when you're reading his stuff, even when it's over government reform. So there was one a couple of months ago where he's writing about the housing crisis in Britain. Well, he starts out by talking about riding his bike over to this dilapidated dilapidated building and uh-huh. examining it. And so he's, he starts the column in the house, 
Then he goes and cites all these statistics and talks about the major problem. You have, and he ends the column back in the house. Talking about, so here I am in the midst of these you know, studs, bare studs on the wall and the floors coming up. And I'm thinking to myself, we've got to solve this problem. That's kind of the way that he went about writing the Wow, that's column. well done. And I like that about him. He is a very easy to read feel. And probably the third thing, the last thing I think is missing in a lot of, I don't want to say American journalism just because I don't read much else, but what's missing in a lot of what I read is he can actually craft and defend an argument. Right. He that. makes an argument. Now, he's wrong sometimes. Mm-hmm. Depending on who you talk to, he's wrong a lot. Right. But he will make an argument. He will clearly state the facts behind what he's saying. And he will leave you with the impression at the end that you either need to decide to agree with him or disagree with him. But you have no third option. Right. And I really wanted to take some, some things away from that. I thought, you know, surveying those things, he, it was, he has a really unique voice, really entertaining, but also, I think, very instructive for the way that good op-eds should be done. So I really enjoyed that. What about you? What have you read recently? Well, I've uh, got a couple things here. One, I just finished a book by Patrick Henry Reardon called The Jesus We Missed. Now, there's an example of a really arresting title, but actually... The book is not as sensational as the title. He's not trying to reimagine Jesus or debunk Jesus. What he's trying to do is, given that Jesus is fully God and fully human, he's going to put a little emphasis on what does it mean for Jesus to be fully human. And as he goes through Jesus' life, he reminded me of the fact that, oh yes, Jesus was also fully human. So it was a good read. It and was uh, Russell Moore wrote the forward for that? Russell Moore wrote the forward for that. That's exactly right. Secondly, I read a really good article. It's not very long. It's by uh, Sam Alberry, and it's on thegospelcoalition.org, and it's titled, You Are Not Your Sexuality. And it was, you know, you can read a lot of these kinds of things, but Sam Alberry, it's a short article, and he, it's a good article, but at the end, he says, some of us who are same-sex attracted Christians. That's a good way of saying it. And he's not saying gay Christians. He's saying, we have same-sex attraction, but I'm a Christian. Mm-hmm. And I and consequently don't act on it. And he gives five things. This is worth reading the article for. He says, we are learning five things as we strive for holiness and to follow Christ and to take up our cross and deny ourselves that I think everyone else may profit from that we have this shared experience. The first is that your identity is in Christ. That's number one. Number two is that discipleship is hard. Hmm. And you know, I think I'll leave the other three so you can read the article and see. Okay, Sam well, Alberry, you are not your sexuality. Yeah, we'll put a link in the in the comments section it's, on there. Uh, it's a really good article, and but he's making the point that as, as same-sex attracted Christians walk this road, they're learning some lessons that are actually true for all of us. And there's a great grounds for unity. Uh, finally, I want to thank, publicly thank Nike. I, I know that there are a lot of people out there that are boycotting Nike, Man. but I want to publicly thank Nike for their ad with Colin Kaepernick on the 30th anniversary of the Just Do It, because it has spawned some of the most entertaining satire on They're, social the, media. The I've laughed out loud at some of the memes. The memes so and the gifts Thank you, Nike, great. for yes. setting that up. You've helped me chuckle quite a bit this week. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.